Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. Welcome to another episode of Exploring Mormon Thought. Last time we were talking about original sin and some of the ideas of that in the tradition. And this week we're going to be talking about chapter five, which is sin and the uncircumcised heart. We'll discuss the LDS view on original sin and also sin's effect on us and also what it means to have an uncircumcised heart. So starting with the first section here, uh, LDS light on original sin, we get a pretty clear picture of what original sin is and what it isn't. Our second article of faith, it says, we believe that men will be punished for their own sins and not Adam's transgression. It seems in LDS thought that Adam has been forgiven of his sin in the garden and thus it's not part of his nature. It's not something that can be passed on to his progeny, even if sin could be passed on to progeny. And so little children are born into this world innocent. Right, Dad, do you want to elaborate a little bit on LDS thoughts on original sin? Yeah, I mean, there are two observations. One is simply that sin is not genetic. It's not something that we inherit genetically. It's not something that we inherit in view of our relationship to Adam. It is something, however, that arises in the world due to the way that the world is. In other words, it's an environmental hazard. And so, remember last time we talked about, is there an explanation for the universality of original sin? And a part of what we're doing in this chapter is explaining, A, what sin is, and B, why we all suffer from it. All right. Now, in LDS thought, it's understood that spirits are innocent in the beginning. Innocence due mainly to two factors. Number one, little children are incapable of committing sins. We see that mainly in the Book of Mormon stated over and over again, so there's no need to baptize them. And then number two, children are shielded from the effects of the fall by the atonement of Christ, because through the atonement of Christ, Adam had been forgiven of his sin through Adam's repentance. Yeah, and, and what that means, I mean, if Adam's forgiven of his sin, he doesn't suffer from it anymore, so it begs the question as to how he could have passed it on. This is shocking when I speak with LDS people and I tell them, well, we can't inherit anything regarding sin from Adam because he repented and didn't suffer from sin anymore. And so his progeny couldn't have suffered from it because he didn't. And so we're looking at a different explanation for the reason um, that there is sin in the world and what it is. It can't be the kind of fact about us that we just suffer from it because we are what we are. And so you ask kind of a question, what is it then that we inherit at birth that explains the fact that when we reflect on our actions, we find that we have always already sinned? Yeah, and the bottom line with that is that by the time we can reflect on our actions, we are older and have the cognitive capacity to assess our lives. And so we're ruling out already, given the way we're looking at sin, that little children could have a sinful nature or suffer from accountability for sin. Because this is really when we look back on our lives and we reflect, and we're reflecting in a mature and cognizant way that requires a certain cognitive capacity for appreciation of what our lives are and what we've become given the kind of choices that we've made. We're looking back on it and saying, wow, there's a fact about me that I'm not real happy about, and that is when I look back on the choices I've made, there are a lot I'm not very proud of, 
and I'm seeing the kind of person that it's making me, and I see that over and over again, I have violated my own standards, and I've treated people with less than love, and as I think about it, I ask myself, what is it about me that led me to do this, or why did I make those choices? If it's a free choice, then why is it that everybody I know would answer the same way that I do? We all are pretty darned ashamed of some of the choices we made. Okay. And so at birth, we receive these mortal bodies and we're, we're presented with opposition throughout this whole life. And with the exception of Christ, we all succumb to sin at one time or another. And so just coming into this world, even though we don't inherit sin, we do confront a danger and the danger that we confront, you say, is twofold. Number one, you say we genetically inherit certain predisposing biological tendencies. And the second challenge is that we are tempted to think that what we experience through our bodily senses is all there is. Yeah, so the first fact about us is simply that we are material bodily creatures. And our bodies present challenges to us, both because of the bodily passions and because it limits our capacity to access reality. And so the temptation is to think all there is is what we can access through our sensors or what we could reach through the scientific method. That's all there is. And especially in our culture, it's, well, if I have a bodily desire, it has to be fulfilled because it's part of me. I've got to give in to it. But the reality is I think the most thinking people would believe there are passions that my body presents to me challenges. And a part of the task that I am called to as a human being is to learn to master those desires so that they serve me rather than destroy me. And so the first fact about us is simply our our mortal bodies and our bodily existence. There's another fact about us that is important to recognize that explains also our sinfulness. We're born into families that have a history of patterns of behavior, if you will. Just to make a few obvious observations. People who are born into families where there is physical abuse are more likely to be abusers, much more likely, actually. And people who are born to addicts are much more likely to become addicted. And we learn from our parents. I mean, we see how they treat each other. We learn how they do things. And we basically repeat what they do. We learn to do life by watching our parents and those around us for the most part. And it's not merely our families. We live in a world where there are already traditions and there have been evil choices made and there are evil habits and patterns of familial conduct. And when we're young, we don't have the cognitive capacity to assess. All we can really do is learn and basically replicate what we're experiencing. It's not until later when we have the the chance to reflect and the ability to reflect that we may distance ourselves from our own families patterns of conduct and the prejudices that they themselves probably inherited or that they they create. And if there is true evil in the family, the the kind of things that come with sexual abuse or physical abuse or, or the kind of mental abuse that's often present, then we learn those patterns. And as I said, when we're young, we just don't have the capacity to really morally and cognitively assess. We have the ability basically to learn and repeat. And this is exactly what DNC 93 says about sin. It says it's because of the evil traditions of man that sin arises in the world. And so DNC 93, given in 1833 to Joseph Smith, is already saying that sin is an environmental result. It is not a part of our DNA. However, it is a part of the human condition because we're all born little children. We all have to grow up in in, in a family or we grow up in a situation. I mean, 
when kids don't have a defined family or they're orphans and they get placed into foster families or whatever, maybe it's even worse because they don't have somebody who is consistent that can teach them or they have parents who have committed crimes and are in prison and so they're tossed around from family to family. These are very trying circumstances and it's hard to have an integrated personality when one is confronted with those kinds of challenges. So I understand it correctly, it's an original sin, this is referring more to those sins that arise because of the different circumstances or the different dispositions that we can be born into. Like you said, that children that are born into abusive families are or more likely to abuse or children that are born with addictions because of substance abuse that the parents engaged in while they were growing up and while they were pregnant with the child. Is that what original sin in an LDS sense could then be referring to? It's not merely being born with an addiction because your parents were on drugs while your mother was pregnant. It's also the addictions that exist in the family. So, for instance, there's a genetic predisposition to addiction or other kinds of predispositions. And if the behavior is present in the environment with a genetic predisposition, the likelihood that we're going to replicate those kinds of addictions is, is high. And so we're in a world where there are all kinds of things that challenge us that are not our choice to you know, confront and, and, unless we accept that in the pre-existence we accepted the challenge in some sense. But what I mean is, is you know, as, as children, we're confronted with the kinds of things we really can't make choices about. We're not morally accountable for them, but they do affect us and they do predispose us and they may totally enslave us before we can even begin to become morally accountable. Okay. And then you go in to say that there are two natures for us to choose and that our true nature is determined by the nature we choose to adopt. And you say that there are actually two human natures uh, in the Book of Mormon, one being an eternal spirit nature and the other being a temporal or temporary nature of the human body. Which would be the, the true nature to, to choose then? Yeah. And, and so we have this interesting fact about us. Apparently, you know, we have a strong spirit, but weak flesh. <laughs> that, those terms are used directly in the scripture. And the notion is that the flesh is going to present a challenge to our spirit nature. But the reality is LDS scripture is much more integrated because the soul is the spirit and the body combined, right? So what mm-hmm. we are is a human soul. And it's really the combination is what we are. We're not one or the other. We're both. And it's not that they're at war, it's more a matter of how we will learn to integrate them and make them work together. And everybody is faced with these same challenges. Everybody who comes into human existence, who lives a sufficient amount of time to be able to reflect on experience, is faced by the fact that they grew up in a situation where they learned all kinds of really bad habits, bad things, and the traditions and, and pre-existing behaviors in their families that they've replicated even before they could think about it. They've also inherited a human body that is, as we said, limited. And it's just a fact about being human. So the, the question is, is, are these two factors sufficient to explain the kind of sin that we encounter in ourselves and in each other? Right, and you bring up that sin did not permeate the world from the beginning of morality. It began only as mortals began to choose to love Satan more than God or, or acting in ways to injure relationships and create barriers and alienation between us and others and God. Yeah, so if I read the LDS scriptures accurately, 
essentially what they're saying is that sin was not an original feature of human existence, but arose as sin was conceived in our hearts. In other words, it was something that tempted us and we gave in to the temptation, but it's because as we grew and as, as we've encountered our existence, we ourselves have come up with the sin. It's a part of what we ultimately chose. Right. And then you say, in one view, it seems like the LDS scriptures could be putting forth the same position as Arminianism, that we would be guilty of original sin, but for the atonement. But you say that the, the LDS scriptures really teach that we would not be free to choose for ourselves if there had not been an atonement. Elaborate a little bit. Why wouldn't we be able to choose for ourselves if there was no atonement? This really goes back to the Reformation and the way that Calvinists viewed sin. And as a result of sin, we lack the freedom to choose to accept God, and we lack the freedom to choose to do good in a way that is pleasing to God. And so we are unfree until God gives us irresistible grace that moves us to accept his grace against our evil will, which would naturally reject him unless there were irresistible grace to overcome it. Arminianism came along and said, no, that doesn't seem quite right. We reject the Calvinist view. In fact, what happens is God gives sufficient grace to all people to accept the grace that he gives us to save us. And so they have two notions of grace, and let me explain these. One is prevenient grace. Prevenient grace is that grace which is given that doesn't involve a human choice. It involves a change in our nature. And so what prevenient grace does for us in Arminianism is it changes our nature to make us free to choose, whereas without that grace, we wouldn't be free to choose. The reason is, is that we would be so enslaved to sin that we would not be able to make a free choice because there would only be one thing we could choose, and that would be evil. And so we have been made free to make a choice to accept God's grace when offered or not. What we're talking about, and this seems to be the position of LDS Scripture as I read it, and that is that little children and we would be a slave to sin. We would not be able to choose except for the fact that the atonement has made us free. The LDS scriptures don't speak in terms of sufficient grace. They don't speak in terms of prevenient grace. But the concepts, as they are explained, as they fall out, seem to align with those kinds of concepts. We would be unfree and unable to choose at all either good or evil because of our evil nature. We wouldn't even be morally accountable. We only become morally accountable with free choice but as a result of atonement. So there is such a thing as original sin that would enslave us, but we've been delivered from it by the atonement even before we do anything and universally delivered. So there would be an original sin if Christ had failed, I guess is what we could say. But because he didn't fail, we've been made free to choose for ourselves. And so if there's original sin, and there is in the sense that, but for Christ, we would all be slaves to sin, but the notion that we suffer from original sin is only hypothetical. It would only exist if, contrary to fact, Christ had failed. And not so much because Adam sinned, but just because of our very addiction to sin, being born into this world, there would be no way for us to avoid sinning if we lived a decent amount of time on the planet. Yeah, well, at least long enough to become morally accountable and cognitively capable of morally assessing our conduct, it seems. Okay. All right. And then let's go ahead and all in this section with this last paragraph here where you say that the message of the LDS scriptures is that because of the atonement, we are not merely stuck in our past, in our habits and addictions. We are free to choose. 
However, the Elder Scriptures also make clear that to the extent we choose these ways of being and acting, we will become enslaved to sin once again. That is, if I sin after having been freed, then I am enslaved in sin again. For example, if I'm an alcoholic and I have not imbibed for several years, but if I take another drink, then even though I have been free from alcohol for several years, I am once again enslaved to alcoholism. Right. So the notion is, and it's the same, this is what LDS Scripture teaches, we've been delivered from the effects of what would otherwise be original sin. Not inherited sin, but our inability to not sin, okay? Just because of the human nature and the environment in which we exist. But because of the atonement, we have been rendered free to choose for ourselves. However, we're free to choose, and this is the choice that's presented. You can see this in The Greatest Relief in Second Nephi 2. It's also in Second Nephi 6 through 10, and a number of other places in LDS Scripture. The choice that is placed before us is to choose either life or death. If we choose to follow Christ, then we're alive in Christ. But if we choose sin, then we die. The problem is, is once you're dead, you can't really make choices, okay? We're enslaved to sin again. And the notion in the Book of Mormon is that if we continue to choose sin, then we become enslaved again to sin. In fact, we become angels to the devil. We are so stuck in sin. And so, yeah, we've been made free to choose. And here's the dilemma. But if we choose evil, then we will lose our freedom to the extent we choose evil. Here's the problem. We've all chosen evil to some extent, and so we're all to some extent unfree. You know, I use this example with an alcoholic. I've been enslaved to alcoholism, you know, for years. I finally overcome it. But if I imbibe again, what's going to happen is I'm going to be a full-blown alcoholic again. It's not an exact analogy for this reason, and that is we've all given in to sin to some extent. And we're all enslaved to sin to some extent. We all have habits that we don't like. We all continue to do things. We all have patterns of conduct that are sinful in the sense that they are destructive to our relationships. And we continue to do the same things over and over again until we learn not to. But we're all stuck in this cycle of doing things repeatedly because they're a pattern of conduct that we've given into. And we're kind of enslaved to these patterns of conduct that we grow in our lives. We'll talk about why we do that, but the bottom line is that to some extent we're enslaved to sin, all of us. And it's a matter of learning and overcoming, you know, when we do the same thing over and over again that harms our relationships. And we all do it. We call these buttons. People in our relationships choose, you know, they know what buttons we have. And in relationships, I I suspect people who know each other keep pushing each other's buttons because they know the result they're going to get. And the reason they know what result they're going to get is it is so built into us that all we got to do is push the button and we get an automatic readout. It's like operant conditioning. All I've got to do, I, if I operantly condition you to do certain things, I give you a reward or, or a punishment at certain points, you're going to continue to do the same thing over and over and over again to get the rewards or to avoid the punishments. Well, I don't know if it's a result of operant conditioning, but the reality is that we all have these patterns of conduct built into our our lives, and, and a good many of them are patterns of conduct. We ask ourselves, why do I keep doing that? And the people who push our buttons are thinking, why do I do that? I know that every time I do that, that I'm going to get this result that I, I say I don't like, but I must really like it because I keep pushing the button. Maybe I just get a kick out of watching the person be controlled by me because I can push a button and get the same result. And like you said, we continually choose these ways and continually become enslaved in sin once again. Thank goodness for an infinite atonement that 
can free us as many times as we decide to become enslaved in sin again. All right, with that, we'll have Corey take the next section. All right, um, the title of that is Epistemological Assumptions of Moral Obligation. And just as an intro, so again, epistemology just means a theory of knowledge or how and why we can and what we can know and believe and stuff like that. So you begin this section by talking about how there has to be a basis in human experience to just sense or inherently know the demands of morality independently of knowledge of a specific moral theory or ethical theory. So a couple times ago, we talked, you know, all about different moral theories and how they play out to help people know what to do. But as you point out here, very few people can actually articulate a moral theory. And so something else has to be guiding people because, you know, most people aren't going to get the education to be able to study philosophy and find out all the moral theories, but they're still held accountable. So LDS scripture has a unique point of view that points out that each person is born with what is called the light of Christ. And in the Doctrine and Covenants, it says, This light of Christ enlighteneth every man and quickeneth your understandings, and it constitutes what is called the law that I, God, has given unto you, even the law of Christ. And so every person has this light of Christ, and they know the law. So it's not like specific rules but just this very basic idea of knowing good from evil. And the Book of Mormon also taught that everyone knows good from evil as a result of the Spirit of Christ that dwells within us. In Moroni 7.16 it says, For behold, the Spirit of Christ is given to every man that he may know good from evil. And again, this is a unique point of view in that it's attributing this basic knowledge of good and evil to the light that emanates you know, from Christ and from as you said, gives us an option to choose. I think it's related to the atonement in some way. Well, I guess, is there anything you want to expound on that before we move on to the next part of this? In Mormonism, there is this, and it's a consistent commitment, and it's the commitment that we're born into the world, and when we're born into the world, we're born innocent. It's not only that we don't suffer from original sin and we're not guilty, but we're innocent. In fact, in DNC 93, it says, every spirit of man was innocent in the beginning, and God, having redeemed man from the fall, man became again in their infant state, innocent before God. Again, this assumes a kind of hypothetical original sin. It's because God has redeemed us that we stand innocent before God. So we begin innocent. And then it says, this is in, in verse 39, and that wicked one cometh and taketh away light and truth through disobedience from the children of man and because of the traditions of their fathers. And so note again, consistent with what we've been saying, it's asserting that we begin with the light, but we lose light, and the light is the basis of our knowledge, of our spiritual power, our intelligence. And what it's saying is, is over time the light goes out in us, and the reason it goes out is, and it says so, it's through disobedience, and it's through the traditions of their fathers. So again, what it's looking at is the fact that sin exists in the world, because of the kind of choices we make and because of the traditions of the families we grow up in. And then this says, but I have commanded you to bring up your children in light and truth. And so what, and then essentially he goes on to condemn Frederick G. Williams, who's one of the greatest guys ever in the, in the entire restoration tradition. He's under condemnation because he hasn't taught his children in light and truth. And the reason that's so important is that in order to avoid the effects of sin, our children depend on us, at least initially, until they can assess their own behavior. 
for the traditions that they will be taught and for what they learn. But again, it goes back to the fact that this is this is how it is. We begin innocent. We're innocent because of the God's redeemed us through the atonement. We begin with full light of God, but we lose this light because, again, of the factors that, uh, that lead to our choices and the traditions in the families in which we grow up. Then you kind of move into understanding different kinds of goodness in LDS thought. So what constitutes good acts as far as like being moral goes. So guided by this light of Christ, we kind of naturally adopt your agape theory of ethics that we talked about a couple of times ago, which is just basically, you know, well, we'll talk about a little bit here, I guess. So, So the first type of goodness is what you call objective goodness, which consists of an act or state of affairs that, in fact, promotes the greatest mutual well-being of persons in relationship with each other. Referring back to your agape theory of ethics, you say the greatest mutual well-being arises from a relationship of loving unity in which persons seek the best interest of each other. Doing what is good out of a sense of love is literally divine. So this is kind of just this divine within us, I think this is related again to the light of Christ or just the inner divinity that's actually within our spirits that happen to inhabit our bodies here. And so it's just that, I suppose. Well, the objective goodness are these facts about us that we can observe in others and that are objectively available to all of us. So, you know, we notice that people promote the greatest well-being and the ability to grow for others and in ourselves. So the Gopi theory of ethics posits that the greatest mutual well-being is really what is the greatest good, because we're looking at what will promote us in our divine nature. And so the mutual well-being arises best in a loving relationship in which persons seek the best interests of each other. And so we don't do good out of a sense of duty. This is how objective goodness, for instance, would differ from a Kantian ethic or even from a consequentialist ethic. I'm not doing something because I'm obligated to do it. I'm doing it because I love. I'm doing it literally because this is what I desire to do because I care so much about other people, and that's objective goodness. All right, and then the second one is just what you call goodness of the heart, and you say that arises when an agent does what is good gladly for its own sake. So I guess kind of like altruism is kind of a word that describes that. And you say an agent performs an act or refrains from doing an act because it is in the best interest of others that he do so. And enhancing the well-being of others brings the agent joy and satisfaction. Yeah, so again, this is other-directed. And that is that I'm seeking the best interest of those around me. And in doing so, I recognize that's in my best interest as well because what is fulfilling for me is enhancing the well-being and enjoyment of others. And as a result, it's also best for me because that's what brings me the greatest happiness. And so there's this goodness of heart. But notice it's a motive-based type of assessment. I'm doing things not out of a sense of duty or because I have to. If I do something because I have to, what it means is I wouldn't do it naturally. I really don't want to do it, but I'm doing it because I feel some kind of heavy duty weighing on me to cause me to do it. And so I kind of fight against the goodness. But a goodness of heart is the opposite. There's no heaviness about it. It's not a duty. I do it gladly because I get so much darn enjoyment and satisfaction. It's like Christmas morning when I go out and I buy a lot of toys for my kids. And 
I do that because on Christmas morning, the wonder and the and just the absolute joy in the eyes of the kids is what makes Christmas magic. But it's why being Santa Claus is so much better than actually getting the gifts. As great as that is, as great as it is to be a kid and have all that loot waiting for you when you wake up, watching your own children and their sense of magic and satisfaction, you know, it's just a, a sense of real divine love. And that's why those family times can be so holy and sacred. It's just an amazing thing. But it has to do with doing something, and the motive isn't, well, gee, I feel like I've just got to do this. I really don't want to, but man, that's my moral duty. I do it gladly. I don't feel it as a duty. It's not a have to. It's a, man, I'm glad I get to do this. Okay, and then the third goodness you call subjective goodness, and you articulate that it consists in doing or attempting to do what the agent believes to be good, despite any mistake in the agent's actual factual beliefs or moral principles guiding his conduct. So why did you give that caveat in the end? Like, because I understand, you know, you can intend to do good, but you might not necessarily understand the situation enough to do good, but that's, are you saying that's irrelevant? Well, I'm saying we're obviously limited in our knowledge. Let me give you an example. I see a guy on the street and he holds his hand out to me and begs me for money. And I think to myself, you know, I've just read King Benjamin, we're all beggars, and I shouldn't turn down the solicitation of a beggar. And so I want to do something good, and I feel, I don't know if I feel an obligation, but I feel like, well, this is what I ought to do. I guess I feel an obligation if it's what I ought to do. And so I hand the guy money, and it brings me happiness because that's truly the kind of person I want to be. And so there's this sense of acting out of goodness of heart. But objectively, I'm going to do something bad for that person because he's going to turn around and go buy drugs or he's going to take it and hawk it for drugs or whatever. I mean, that's the greatest likelihood as to what's going to happen. So while I think I'm doing good, objectively, I'm not doing good. The results and consequences for that person actually harm that person. And I just haven't thought it through so well. And so there's a goodness of being naturally disposed to do acts that I see as good whether the other person benefits or not, because it expresses my love, it expresses the goodness of my heart, and that's regardless of the consequences. However, it behooves me also to to think these kind of things through. I'm not going to do something that I believe is going to be harmful to another person, but I often don't know enough to know, and it's often this way with our children, and you're discovering this because you're your fathers now. You'll make decisions about your children about how to discipline them, and oftentimes you won't know whether the discipline is in their best interest or not. The discipline is meted out because, you know, I really believe that what I'm doing is ultimately going to redound to the benefit of my child. The problem is, is oftentimes it's not clear whether that's the best course of action or whether that really will result in the best results for your child. You love your child, you're doing the best that you can, but you just don't know enough to know if it's really going to have a good effect or not or whether it really is the best thing that you can do. Is giving in and giving the money to your child when your child asks the best thing to do or is the best thing to do to withhold the money? Is the best thing to do to let your child go play with her friends even though she has chores to do? Or is it being tough and saying, no, you got to do your chores first? As a parent, we make these kinds of choices all the time. And our Heavenly Father, I have to believe, is doing the same thing with us. But there's this kind of goodness in, in being disposed to do the best that you can for others. And there's this goodness about that is that regardless of the consequences. But it's better if you have all three, if you have a goodness of heart and objective goodness and also this subjective good where you intend to do well so that's what we're talking about and then after that you say there's three types of goodness of character that correspond to the three types of goodness and so 
that's just goodness in general. And then developing a goodness of character is the second part. And so the first one corresponds, it says, there is a kind of goodness that characterizes an agent who is naturally disposed to do good for others because it is good to do so. The person who is inclined to do acts simply because they are good and benefit others has established a good character by making choices of beneficence over a period of time. Yeah, it just seems that the, there's this kind of actual goodness. There are good, these are things that are good in our character. It's good to have a character that we have developed where we just naturally act for the good of others because we believe that's the good thing to do. Let me give an example here from something that not everybody may know about, but I hope they do. There's a difference between Superman and Batman. Superman, he lives in a world where there's actual good, and he does the good because he believes it's good to do it, and he just seems to be naturally aware of what's good or does the best he can to be aware. Sometimes he's not sure that what he's doing is the best thing to do, but he's always striving to do what's good. This is a good character. On the other hand, Batman seems to be acting out of a motive of vengeance. He does good, but he doesn't do it because he's naturally disposed to do good. He does it because he's trying to take care of his very damaged character, and this is the only way that he can make up for it. He's actually an ethical egoist who's doing what's best for him because he's got to avenge the death of his parents. That's not the kind of goodness we're talking about. It may have good results in getting rid of crime, but it comes out of a fractured and destroyed personality, and so this kind of goodness doesn't exist in Batman. It does exist in Superman, except for the last two movies, where Superman's parents have told him, you don't owe a darn thing to anybody, and you should avoid doing good because it will get you noticed, and so he avoids doing good, which is a complete misunderstanding of Superman and why nobody really caught on to those two movies, because they fundamentally misunderstand Superman. Agreed, and that could be a whole podcast into itself anyway. All right, number two, there's also the goodness of an agent whose moral beliefs are, in fact, correct. What do you mean by that? Well, it seems that if I intend to do good for a person, and it's not really good for a person, and I did it because I just didn't take the time to know what was the best, then there's a certain defect in me. I didn't care enough to really find out what was best for the person. I was just trying to satisfy my sense of goodness. It seems to be much better if it actually does benefit the person, in addition to my hoping that it benefits the person. And so there's this kind of objective goodness about it in addition to my character. And then the third one, which is pretty closely connected to that, says there's a goodness in being naturally disposed to do acts that are good as the agent sees it, whether the other is benefited or not. So this is back to that, like, you know, maybe you give the homeless guy 10 bucks and you don't really know if he's benefited. But you point out right after that, it said, you know, if someone was truly being loving, they would seek to actually benefit others and not merely to try to benefit them. And so the more you develop this, the more you would realize like, well, maybe I don't just give this guy 10 bucks because that actually won't lead to his happiness. Maybe I need to bring this guy to a rehab center and fund that. And then after he's there, you know, somehow help him get a job. And that's what he really needs. He doesn't need my 10 bucks. He needs someone to pick him up and help him out. And this is also reflected in kind of, I read like this relationship article recently and says, you know, we've heard it said, and this is a problem that a lot of people have in their relationships, that you should do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But the problem with that is, if you do, you don't know what others want, and so if you just do what you think that would be good because you like it, then it turns out that they're not going to be very happy. What you should actually try to do is do unto others as they would have you do unto them. And so this is specifically between like a husband and a wife, but I've seen this in my own marriage, like people have different love languages. And so if you try to just express love in the way 
that you feel it to the other person, and if they have a different love language, then it's actually not being effective. When this kind of a funny example, I don't know if you remember the show Home Improvement, you should, good stuff. In one of the episodes, he gets his wife a present, which is just like a really awesome steering wheel, which in no way benefits her. He just got it because he thought it was cool. <laughs> He's like, there you go. So, I don't know. That's just kind of an example of trying to help someone that's not really actually attempting to figure out what they actually need or want. Yeah, it does. It seems like this is very important, but it involves an epistemic difficulty, and that is you don't know what the other person truly wants, especially if the other person is a woman that you will never fully understand because she's never going to directly say what she wants. She's going to hint at it and expect that you're like another woman who will get what she wants. And, and maybe she's learned enough to know that you're just a stupid guy and you can't pick up on the things she doesn't say, and you can't read her mind, and so she'll just tell you, my wife has learned to do that, but it was very difficult for me to figure out what she wanted until she figured out, oh, this guy can't do what women do. He doesn't actually get what I want unless I tell him. But there's this problem. How do I know what the other person would have me do for them? Unless they just tell me outright, I'm always going to be in the dark. Okay. And I guess we're not necessarily discussing a solution to that, but just saying that that's kind of goodness. So to move along here, I just want to read this quote here. You say, the view that God has implanted the knowledge of the law in our hearts is key to this approach. So, referring back to that light of Christ. In some sense, we already know the law of God because it is already in us. Yet, we are blind to these truths we know because of what is referred to as uncircumcised or hard hearts or being closed off to others. And this concept seems to be that God has given us an instrument of knowledge in our very hearts. In Deuteronomy, it says, and the Lord thy God will circumcise thine heart and the heart of thy seed to love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul that thou mayest live. For his commandments which I command thee this day are not hidden from thee, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that thou should say, Who shall go up for us to heaven and bring it unto us? For we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that thou should say, Who shall go over the sea and bring it to us? That we may hear it and do it. But the word is very nigh unto thee. It is in thy mouth and in thy heart that thou mayest do it. So that's just saying it's, again, it's written on our hearts what it is that we need to do. Yeah, and Paul relied upon these passages for his view that the law is written in our hearts and for his notion of justification. And that is, in, in a sense, if we go looking for the truth, we're going to miss it because it's already in our hearts. And the question is, that if the truth is so darn close to me, how do I miss it? Because it's right within me. I don't have to go looking for it. I guess it's like the Wizard of Oz. There's no place like home. And, you know, remember Glenda the Good Witch tells Dorothy, you always had it with you. All you had to do was claim it. And it's kind of the same with spiritual knowledge. We always have spiritual knowledge. We always have this knowledge of what the law is. It's written in our hearts. We always know what we're called to do. Because it's written in our hearts, we have this sense, it's built within us, is what this is saying. It also means there's a sense in which we're accountable. If we become agnostics or atheists, I assert, is because we have hidden from ourselves the knowledge that we're born with. And this is exactly what the Old Scriptures are saying, by the way, in case we need to spell it out. We are born with light. We're born with knowledge. It gets hidden from us. And so a part of the problem of sin is how we hide the truth from ourselves. This is an important aspect of sin in LDS thought, but it's also a very important aspect of being a human being. 
people get so lost they have to go find themselves. They get so lost that they have to go looking for something they already have. And by merely looking, they're going to miss it. It's like looking for something that's right in front of you. Can't you see what you've already got? And how could a person lose him or herself? I mean, I've lost myself. I've got to go find myself. In my generation, it was very common for people to go on long journeys and follow rock bands around because they had to go find themselves or they had to use drugs to find themselves. The question is, well, how on earth could you lose yourself? You are yourself. And it's that kind of thing. It's that, and it's that obvious. <laughs> and so the question that arises, well, how, if we know the truth, how do we hide the truth that we know from ourselves? For the rest of the discussion, there is a notion and an experience that is essential to get or nothing that follows will make sense. And it is a sense of a felt moral imperative. I'm going to give an example. It happened while I was actually writing this volume that we're discussing. is volume two. And I'm writing away about God's love. And my wife comes in and says, you know, the children would really like it if you would read to them. And I remember I had this sense of, yeah, that's, that's really what I ought to do because it's just what I feel like I ought to do. But I didn't do it. And I sat writing about divine love thinking, geez, she comes in and interrupts me all the time. If she were a really good wife, she'd be capable of taking care of the kids to make sure that I'm left free to write. And, you know, she couldn't be a very good wife because she can't take care of the kids on her own. And she is bothering me here when I'm writing about the most important thing on earth, divine love. What could be more important than that? And then I caught myself. It's like, you idiot. <laughs> How on earth could you believe in divine love and not believe that when your wife comes in and asks you for assistance with the children and points out that your children would really love it if you participated in their lives. And you think what you're doing is more important than that. And it was the greatest hypocrisy on earth. I'm writing about divine love and trying to justify, and we'll get into this kind of self-deception and self-justification to try to justify our nonsensical views that we use against those that when we have this felt moral imperative. But a felt moral imperative is this sense that we have an innate sense. It's in us. It's because of the light of Christ and because we've been left free to choose and because the law is written in our hearts. We actually know this kind of stuff. We know what we're called to do. And I felt moral imperative is this moral call when we look and see something that we actually feel is the appropriate thing that we ought to do. And I use an ought here, but not in the sense of a moral obligation that pulls on me. It only becomes, and, and this is what I want to emphasize, it becomes an obligation and a duty only when I resist it. I could go up, and, and this is the truth about that. Reading to my children, um, and I read a lot of books. I read Ender's Game. You know, I, I read The Hobbit. And we read, you know, all about a, a number of things with, with my kids. And it was one of my favorite times of the day. I loved doing it. And I loved the kind of interaction that I had with you kids when you were growing up doing that kind of thing with you. It was one of my favorite parts of the day. And it was something that I knew I was called upon to do in my heart. But when I resisted it, it became an obligation, and then I felt like I had to justify my refusal to do what I knew I was called to do. And then it felt like an obligation. It became heavy. It's like, oh, geez, I don't really want to do this. I'm being forced to do this against my will. And then I have to come up with all kinds of reasons why I'm not doing it. I'm engaged in full-blown self-deception, which is what we will discuss next week is this notion of self-deception, which I think is so enlightening and I think is the real explanation for sin in Mormonism. The others are factors that lead us to self-deception, but self-deception is actually the engine of sin. 
as far as the scriptures go. But this felt moral imperative. Again, I know that I'm called to assist a person in a certain way. I know that I'm called to go assist my neighbor to move when I see him moving. I know that I'm called to go help my neighbor get up when I see her fall. I know that I'm called when my wife is cleaning up the kitchen all by herself. and I'm a jerk because I'm not in there assisting her. I know that I'm called to support my family. And if I don't do that, I feel it as a huge burden. And so that's what a felt moral imperative is. And it's a very important concept. It's also a lived human experience. We all experience these moral imperatives that call us to conduct, that call us to not engage in conduct. And it's not a duty, it's not an obligation until we resist it. That's a felt moral imperative. All right, just to bring it around, I guess. So in talking about sin and stuff like that, like why were we talking about felt moral imperatives and like goodness? How does that relate to sin, at least in the big picture, without going into the next sections and stuff? It relates to sin because the felt moral imperative is something that we feel in interpersonal relationships about how to treat each other. And when we don't treat another person the way that we know we're called to treat them, then we feel it as an obligation that we resist. And then we have to come up with all kinds of justifications not to do what we know we've been called to do. And more importantly, we then begin to justify all kinds of really rotten behavior because we come up with all these justifications about why we shouldn't treat each other the way we know we're called to treat each other. And then we come up with all kinds of really twisted of rationales for failing to love each other and justifying our failure to love. And it's not merely mild sin. It can turn into really desperate human evil that is so evil that when we look it squarely in the face and see it for what it is, it knocks the air out of us. So that's how it relates. Right. That makes sense. So it's just like the launching point for every type of sin. Yeah. And it goes back to the light of Christ. We know what we're called to do. The light of Christ enlightens us and what we are called to do as good. We may not always fully appreciate the results of our behavior. We may not fully appreciate what will do the best for another person, but we know what we're called to do. And if we trust this call, then I submit that we will be much better off and that it actually has all of these three types of goodness and leads to the three types of goodness of character that we've been talking about. And that's how those are related. If we observe the felt moral imperative, and especially within the agape theory of ethics, because felt moral imperative means these are the ways that we're called to love each other These are the ways that we're called to solidify our relationships and to make them not merely meaningful, but to really be other-centered so that we are called to love others. And when we focus, we're not self-absorbed, we're not selfish. When we overcome this kind of self-absorption that gets in the way of, of loving others, then all three types of goodness are realized. And the bottom line is, is that We have it written in our hearts, and so we have cognitive access to it, and we're accountable for not acting upon the felt moral imperative. Well, that makes sense. And yeah, next time we'll continue this discussion and do the next two sections. But for right now, I think we have a good starting point before we go into that. Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought.com.